This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. Who do we got today, Colin? Yeah, we got my man, not to be... Not to be mistaken with the Spanish name, we just got we just got we just got schooled on a little bit of uh, geo, I guess, geography. But we got my man Valentin Huma with Upbid. What's up, my man? Did hey, I say guys, that pronounce it right? Yeah, almost, that, almost. That's good, man. It's close right. enough. I'll, I'll, I've been it didn't called Valentin Huma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've been called you know other names. So yeah, that's cool. Valentin yeah, so, Huma. So, you know, just to kind of follow up on our conversation before we started recording, you know, originally Romanian. And so we were laughing because you were saying that, you know, you go to restaurants here in Texas and everyone mistakes you for being, you know, they'll come up and start talking to you in Spanish. And they always do, man. They always <laughs> do. And I don't understand anything. And it uh, sometimes it gets, I get offended, you know, because it's Texas, you know, this is, you know, we've got to speak English. So <laughs> I start talking to them in Romanian. They were looking at me like, what exactly? <laughs> You know, English. <laughs> you, throw, you throw it right back at him, huh? <laughs> yeah. That's too funny, man. So tell us a little bit about, you know, I think we'd met you at Energy Tech Night. Tell us a little bit about Upbid and what you guys are doing. So simpler Upbid, it's the new Uber freight for the oil and gas industry. Okay. Uh, the, the most, the, the simple way to put it out, you know. We put it in the oil and gas companies to meet with a lot of carriers in the industry. And simple. Yeah. As simple as it can be. Yeah, I mean, obviously, trucking's a massive industry, and also it's just a massive pain in pain in the ass, to be honest, when it comes to logistics of getting jobs going. I mean, I think I've talked about this plenty of times on the show, but managing projects for Inventure, I swear the hardest part was working with freight carriers to get equipment from Houston to North Dakota or Midland or Oklahoma or wherever it might be. So there's definitely a lot of pain points involved in the process. There, there's, a, there's a big complicated process. And what we, what we were able to do, you know, back in the days, before we moved to Houston, you know, I was doing transportation company in Detroit, you know, for 15 years. And moving to Houston, I got introduced to the oil and gas industry and I started up as a technician working at a NOV and building the drilling rigs in Galena Park. I worked there for two years. And two years later, I transferred to a tech support NOV. And two years after that, I decided to open my own business, you know, as I call it PFL supply, because I wanted to do selling parts, working in tech support at NOV. I was able to see how much money markup they have on parts and products. And we the plan was to start selling parts for mm -hmm. the oil and gas, but the customers, they were knowing me for the knowledge that I have on the control side of the drilling rigs. So they would keep calling me for that and PFL supply turned into a service company. Instead of selling parts and products, we start offering service to electrical and controls. And this is how I started being, having my own company in the oil and gas industry. And I was doing that for about seven years until I sold out the company to form energy technology. They bought me out because we develop a wireless sensor for condition-based maintenance system to monitor the health of the equipment, That all the equipment that doesn't have any sensors. So for that reason, last year in May, uh, Forum bought us completely, and I stayed with them until this year. 
May of this year until I decided to go back and be my own boss again. You're putting yourself through the ringer again, huh? <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's what I do. I love being my own boss. I love starting up new things. And it's just, it's for me, it's just what wakes me up every day. Yeah, absolutely. So interesting story. Let's, let's kind of break this up. So you were in Detroit working for a transportation company for I, 15 I had, years. Yeah, I work as a driver and then I had my own trucks and I had my own companies doing runs for uh, the big Trump, big three companies they have, the Ford, GM and Chrysler. So we were doing transportation runs in Detroit for okay. years. So was this, you know, like shipping the actual automobiles themselves or Not parts the related? Just parts. Okay. Parts. Awesome. So what brought you down from Detroit to Houston? Was it a shift in, in the industry? I mean, obviously. So the transportation company in Detroit, they started taking a dive after September 11. You know, fuel prices was going high and, you know, the whole industry was shifting and it was, it was time for me to move on. And we had a couple of friends that were moving to Houston and we decided to talk to my wife's like, yeah, you know what? It, it's, it's time, you know, to, to just change everything. So. You say I, you say it so nonchalant. I mean, that's that's a life decision, right? No, well, we didn't sure we didn't have a house. We didn't you know we didn't had nothing to hold us back. You know, so we didn't have any kids at the time. And I load up my uh, furniture in my dead semi truck. I load up my cars. I had two cars with my wife. We they drove my dad drove us down to Houston. Got us a job and started working in the oil and gas industry. So how'd you get linked up with NOV when you came down to Houston? What year was this? 2007. 2007. Okay. So this is right before the financial yes. crash of 08, 09. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so in 2007, whenever uh, I had an interview as in the service department at NOV, and I didn't have the, the right knowledge to start working in the service department, and I was introduced to Galena Park where they're building the drilling rigs. Mm-hmm. And that for me was the best experience ever because I had to learn everything about the drilling rigs. And back then it was the first rig they built, the first ACI ideal rig, the more modern ones with the Ricardo chairs and screens, joysticks. Yeah, where you actually had the the big cyber, you know, control doghouses. Yeah, yeah, it was the Amphion control system they were building. It was the first rig. And it was, for me, it was just like a big video game. And that's how I was able to correlate and try to understand the whole rig. I mean, that was a big transition period in drilling technology. I mean, just so if you're listening and you're not familiar with the layout of drilling rigs, like the rigs that I broke out on were, I mean, very rudimentary. I mean, they don't look much different than the rigs that we've drilled on for the last, you know, 50, 60 years. You know, your driller is outside. He's got a brake handle. You know, he's just sitting there and got this brake handle, you know, he's just going up and down on it. And when we started coming out with these uh, joystick rigs, and, you know, started running top drives and ST80 roughnecks, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these things became pretty advanced really it, quick. It was, it was a big change. You know, I was a truck driver before I had my own transportation company. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm getting into the oil and gas industry control technicians. My school, I finished the school. I, I was an electrician back home in Romania. So I do have the knowledge base of the electrical work and controls, but nothing comparing with a drilling rig, right? So. Mm-hmm. The first first couple, first weeks at NOV, they they give me the drawings, you know. It's like here are the drawings, there's the rig, go work on it. You know, it's like I was coming home to my wife's like, oh my god, I think they're gonna fire me any day now because <laughs> I don't know anything. You know, I was looking at these drawings and I've never seen drawings in in America before. You know, electrical drawings, but I was sitting at home looking, trying to understand, trying to understand myself how to work and how to read them and. 
the next couple of months, I was one of their top technicians in the yard, you know, commissioning the, the, the drilling rigs. Awesome. This is, this is kind of funny for me because it's coming full circle. Cause I'm getting flashbacks. I'm out on a rig somewhere. I'm trying to fit a wrench in somewhere. I'm like, man, fuck whoever made this rig and designed it like this. You know, they never think about the roughnecks that have to, they have to fix it. Now I'm sitting here with a guy that's out here designing the rigs. So just want to tell you, man, well, I, I, I didn't like your type back in the day. <laughs> so we were not designing it, you know, in the commissioning department, they were bringing every component, you know, and we had to put it together and making sure that the, the, the final task and make sure that everything is working together. Yeah. You know, but Man, there were days, especially brand new rig that, you know, they were coming up with the catwalks and there were no drawings, no manual, nothing, you know, just there's a the catwalk. You got to figure out how it works. You know, <laughs> there were no drawings whatsoever, man. So one of the things that we like to, I guess, kind of our, our tagline for Digital Wildcatters has been evolve or die. And it kind of came out of a viral video that Colin had put on LinkedIn about a year, year and a half ago. And I think this is a great example of that, right? So you're, you're working in Detroit, you're working in the transportation industry, right? That was your life. Yes. You knew it was dying. You knew that it was going away. But rather than just die along with it, you evolved and you looked to something new. And exactly. You found an entirely new industry and you figured it out. And I think this is important for listeners because what we're going through, and we've been talking about in a lot of the previous episodes, is a major transition, especially in upstream, especially on the service side. I think it's going to be hit the hardest. And so I think this is a good lesson for them to know that, you need to make yourself either more valuable in the current market or you need to find something else to do. Exactly. And it's, and it's unfortunate. I think we, we've seen that. Just be flexible in, in your skill set and always willing to learn something new, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in 2007, man, to be honest, you know, whenever we moved to Houston, I only had the, the furniture, two vehicles, and $5,000 cash in my pocket. That was everything that I moved to Houston. Wow. And yes, I do live the American dream. That's you awesome. Know, four years later, I was able to open my own company. In the first year I did, you know, we hit a $1.5 million in sales, you know, with a couple of technicians. That's awesome. So that was... You look at it, the, the timing is just very interesting. I don't think you could have played the timing better, exactly. right? You get out of Detroit, you know, right before the 08 recession. And I mean, the auto industry was just decimated in this period, exactly. right? And you come down to Houston and Houston was right at the right at the verge of taking off, you know, with the shale boom and just the next uptrend in oil and gas. And so your timing was impeccable, you know, from so leaving from one market to coming to another. From 2007, 2009, it was very busy. We were building rigs, rig after rig in Galena Park. And in 2009, it started hitting. We were start slowing down and they were cutting the hours. And I said, you know what, if you don't give me and transfer me to a different department, they will give me more hours. I will move to a different company. Mm -hmm. So they decided to move me to tech support at NOV, which it was, again, one of the greatest jobs I ever had for working for a company because we were able to do 100 and, 100 and 180 hours a week. And only that because we were working 12 days straight, 12 hours a shift. But whenever you're at home, you're still on call mm -hmm. because we were, me and another guy, we were the controls guys in tech support. And if we were not in tech support, they would call you at home. So you're still going to be able to put that on your timesheet every time they call you and talk with the customers. And there were nights where, you know, we make four or five calls a night, you know, wow. waking up in the middle of the night. But it was 108 hours a week. That was a great paycheck. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, you know, every everyone always sees those big paychecks, but they don't want to put in, you know, 100, 110 hours a week either because that's the pits. You know, you work for 12 hours, you go home and you need some rest and then you take, you know, four four calls during the nighttime. That's hard work. So yeah, it's just it's just work, man. Yeah, you it's know, just it's work. Just you got to do what you're going to do to make it, you know, make a living and 
Yeah. Take care of the family. Yeah. That's what I tell people too. But that's not the, the mindset that a lot of people well, have, right? And that's why they don't make it out in, in exactly. oil field service or anything related. I like what you said about, so you, you know, you sell the company and then you're like, fuck it, I'm going to do it again. Right. I get asked so, so many times like, Hey, what are you guys going to do after this? Or what do you want to do event? Like, when are you going to retire? I'm like retirement. That's not even my vocabulary because work is my hobby and I enjoy it. And if I'm sitting still, even like weekends bother me. Exactly. Right? Vacations bother me. Exactly. You know, and a lot of people don't get that, but that's the way that I'm wired. And it seems that that's the way that you're wired. And a lot of us entrepreneurs are wired that way. Well, you know, first thing, all the friends that I have and all the people that I know, as soon as they find out that I sold a company to Forum Energy, which is a publicly traded company, mm -hmm. it's a big company, you, you know, yeah. the first thing, so where are you going to go? You're going to go on vacation. What are you going to do? It's like, I'm going to go to work Monday morning. I'm going to go to work. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. You know? you know? I got to be at the office at eight. <laughs> you know, so it, to me, you know, I don't do it so I can have an early retirement. I don't do it so I can have a better retirement. I do it because I love doing the entrepreneur, you know? Yeah. And whenever I decided to move on in May of this year away from Forum, a lot of people thought that I was crazy. You know, I mm -hmm. had a very, very comfortable paycheck, you know, mm -hmm. a good job, you know, a good uh, position. But it's not me, you know, it's not the guy Absolutely. I am to go to the office and, you know, because I did sell the company so I can learn the publicly trade company, how they operate and how they're being managed, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's, it was totally different than I expected it. You know, and every time I was trying to come up with the project and develop something new, there were so many barriers that I have to go through and being approved and being approved. And I was like, you know what? This is not for me, you know? Yeah. Because before, anytime that I want to do it, pull out my credit card, get it done. Yeah. Test it out. Execute. Come on up with a product, you know? Yeah. So for the people who aren't listening, for just kind of briefly, we'll kind of walk us through, you know, that acquisition process. They, they, they notice you guys. It's obviously a viable acquisition for them. And then. How, how long were you with them after the acquisition? Was it? So, well, uh, well, let's roll, let's roll it back before that, because it's not often we get to talk to someone that's, you know, multiple time founder had, had an acquisition. So how did you get acquired in the first place? You know, was it, did Forum approach you? Did so you we approach, we approach Forum not to be acquired, but to work with them and to be better to monitor their equipment. So as a service company, we start doing remote monitoring drilling rigs. We will monitor the South regions and West Texas region, Patterson, the entire fleet. So we were giving them access to remote monitor their operating system. And later on, we developed the wireless sensors to monitor equipment that does not have any sensors, you know, to be able to prevent any loss of a plugless uh, connection or a motor getting heated up, you know. Yeah. So we came up with the solutions, and as soon as we did it, we were trying to find new customers, and we approached Form to be able to monitor the vibration and the temperatures and the hydraulics on the catwalk they very well known for. Mm -hmm. So Chris Harsberger, the vice president of the digital uh, department, he told me, like, I like what you're doing, I like what you have, but, you know, let's have you ever thought about selling the company? And I was like, well you know, let's talk about it. And this is how we were start looking into it and how we're going to be able to work it out. Either part buy half of the company and work together and, you know, being so small and all the, it wasn't working properly to work as a half and half partner. So we said, yeah. you know what, we're just going to buy it out completely. I said, you know, let's just, it will be fine with me, you know. Interesting. Very cool. Yeah. It's funny what can come out of those conversations, right? Where you're just wanting to service or provide insight on, on one of their pieces of equipment and it just turns out to like, mm -hmm. We'll just buy you guys. 
<laughs> well, majority of this NOV, you know, in any of these companies, they are conglomerate of different companies. So, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. But most of the, I, I only did it probably because of the experience and trying to learn the corporate world so I could be able to prepare myself for the next steps in my career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's something valuable to take away from that, right? I mean, one, you get an acquisition, you're able to liquidate all, all the hard work that you, you've done, but then you get to go learn the inner workings of a public corporation and you can take those lessons onto onto the next thing, whether good or bad. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and as an entrepreneur, you know, a lot of the people were asking him, yeah, but this is, was your baby. What have you done? Is And the first rule that I, I have my own rules in my own boss is don't make it personal. You know, it's just a business, you know, mm-hmm. it's a business, make money, you know, move on. And the next thing, you know, it's going to be a different business. The next couple of years, the next step in the career's life, anybody's life is going to be a different business. Yep. Just move on and don't make it personal because otherwise you are not going to be able to move on and detach from it. You know, you're going to keep it as your baby. And even if it's a, it's getting worse, you're still not going to be able to let go. Yep. Yep. I try to tell people it's hard not to get emotionally attached, right? To, to things that you put so much the, blood, sweat and tears into, but I think that's the worst role that you're going to have. It's attached to you, to your business, you know, yeah. you work for it, work with it, you know, but don't get attached emotionally. I think exactly. it's, I think that I think getting attached to the idea or the business itself is, is, half of it maybe and i think the other half is kind of because i've experienced this looking back to my time with gds where whenever i decided to kind of make my own exit with no money and just leave the company Do you work with gds gds where back in so i, I co-founded that in 2013 and then i left in end of 2016 and i think the biggest issue that i had was that i felt like my identity was wrapped up in that of the company and so then once i left the internal struggle that i had which was kind of this, the genesis of like the whole next year kind of a depression that I was dealing with was I just felt like that was like GDS and me were one and the same. And that was like my, it was almost like part of like my personal brand or something. And, mm-hmm. and that was, and that was a challenge for me. And that was a hard lesson to learn that that's not necessarily always the case. Yes. You know? Yeah. And, and again, you know, any of, it feels like if it's, if you don't work for somebody else, you put too much into it, it's not your baby. But if you work for yourself, it is the baby, be ready to let go. Yeah. Yep. That's good advice. Yeah. So, okay, we we get the acquisition forum. You go work there for a year and a half, right? Uh, one year. One year. Okay, one year. You start getting that itch. Like, man, I gotta I gotta do something. Well, so yeah, the, the actual contract was supposed to be four years, you know, and a year right on the dot, you know, I decided, you know, yeah. <laughs> got to go back out, you know, and, and try to do something that it's not, because I still have an on-compete with them with the uh, condition-based maintenance system. Yeah. We worked on a lot of projects. We did the uh, condition-based maintenance system for majority of the rigs that Trinidad had, and we were monitoring about 100 sensors for each Trinidad rig and before they got bought out by Enzyme. And we developed with the form team, we developed a condition-based maintenance box to monitor the vibration of the top drive electric on the TDS-11 to uh, prevent the bearings from, uh, well, you're not going to be prevented, but find out when the bearings are going to go out, you know. Interesting. So TDS-11, that's the top drive system, right? That's the the, the unit? Yeah, the TDS-11, it's a top drive that it's uh, designed by NOV. Okay. And it's probably one of the most expensive tool that they have and most critical tool they have on a drilling rig. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, you're not familiar with the, the components of a drilling rig, you can go look up top drives, see the difference between a top drive and a old Kelly rig. Big and, difference. 
Yeah, I said I broke. I broke out on Kelly Riggs. That's what I always tell these guys. I'm like, man, you don't know. Real exactly, roughnecking. Exactly. That's, that's <laughs> exactly. So what? Let's kind of let's transition into Upbid and where you're at now. Because at, at some point, you know, a year, you know, you're no, you're, you know, that you have to move on to the next thing. Did you already have this concept for Upbid? in your head were you already thinking about it or you know did you did you leave and stumble across the opportunity after you left how did that process work? so having my own company in the past there was a lot of times when we were still doing service work and condition maintenance and remote monitor but we were also doing hot shots you know because when a covered customer picks up the phone and calls you you know i was never say no to customers if he's going to say hey can you send me a driver to to pick up a part of NOV in Houston and deliver in Victoria, I'll, I will definitely do it because it's money in my pocket no matter what, you know. So we understand exactly what are the, the needs for the oil and gas industry is. And especially after 2015 when the downturn were, you know, every drilling companies, they were negotiating to the bone on service work. Electrical, mm-hmm. mechanical, because back in the days, you know, as a control technicians, there was a minimum day rate of whatever twelve hundred dollars, fifteen hundred dollars a day, no matter how many hours you put out on the rig. But right now, it goes by the hour. So they negotiated everything, and the only thing that was that was not able to be negotiated, it was the transportation part, the hot shot. You know, you still have hot shot companies that charge three dollars to four dollars a mile. Yep. In in West Texas, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I think this is the uh, one of the things that, you know, there's a lot of room to work with. There's a lot of companies that need more efficiency transportations and better rates. And there's a lot of guys that they do a good job in transportation, but they don't have the the higher standards that, you know, some of the companies require for a higher insurance. Mm-hmm. You cannot afford to do that and you cannot afford to pay it. Yeah. So you're, you're drawing on all your past experience from your previous companies. You understood the pain points that are happening in oil and gas. Earlier, you had you kind of compared a bid to a Uber freight for oil and gas. Pretty sure everyone listening is familiar with Uber. If they're not, they've been living in a cave. But a lot of people may not be familiar with Uber freight. And so, you know, that business model on Uber freight that allows that allows you know someone if they I don't even know how the platform works a hundred percent, but say that they need to, you know, ship something apart from Houston to Las Vegas. Does Uber Freight allow them to kind of match that, you know, find a driver or a carrier or so in order to work for Uber Freight, you know, the difference is you have to understand what the Uber Freight is and regular Uber, right? Yeah. So with the regular Uber for taxi drivers, you can hire any driver that owns a car. Mm-hmm. With Uber Freight, you gotta you gotta be a motor carrier. You gotta have all the right licenses in place to be able to do transportation of common goods or any kind of goods, right? Yeah. So you're not gonna be able to hire Joe the plumber do to be able to do any transportation needs because it's 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 illegal. So you gotta have to you gotta have you, you gotta hire the right guy. Mm-hmm. So that's why we came up with the upbid where. The whole process works is when any of the drilling companies, they have a load, they will be able to post it out on the load board and all the drivers within the area, they will be able to uh, make you an offer because mm, okay. we wanted to be able to uh, get you an offer and not just a, a standard rate, you know, hey, this is the rate, the same thing with Uber. Uber, there's no negotiation. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the rate that, you know, you either accept it or not. So, but yeah. in, in our situation with Abit is customers will create a load. They will tell you the weight of the load, the dimension of the load, 
where he's going, where he's going to be, uh, where he's going to be picking up from. And we already have some standards pricing, but any of the drivers, they can say, I can do it for a lot less. I can do it for a lot more. And they can negotiate back and forth through the app. Got you. Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty big pain point. I, I think about, you know, when I worked for Inventure, I'd be in different oil fields all over America and I may be up in Kildare, North Dakota to where I don't have any hotshot contacts up there, you know, to take my equipment back down to Houston. And so having a marketplace or a platform to where I can source drivers from that area and just say, Hey, here's the load, here's the dimensions, the weight, and then have people bid on it. That'd make life a lot easier than me trying to chase down people. Exactly. Because what we're trying to do is just trying to make uh, the whole transportation and the logistic of the transportation more affordable and more efficient, right? So we're trying to help customers reduce the cost for the shipping by having the same load they have being shared with another company on the same truck, right? Mm. There's a lot of drivers on the road all the time, and they're always going to have room for more. So what we're trying to do is reduce the cost of the, the shipper by sharing the same truck with another company. Mm -hmm. But the driver will be able to make an extra cash by picking up a second or third load. Yeah, everyone, going the same everyone wins in that scenario. Exactly. If the driver makes more money, companies save money by sharing loads. Exactly. Yeah. And, and in a situation, and most of the time, especially in the middle of the night, you know, where you have a rig in the middle of nowhere, try to get a part out to the rig, you know, you have to call in different dispatchers, different carriers, and no, I don't have anybody. No, I don't have anybody. You know, with the app like this, you put the load out there and all the drivers available, they will get a ping, they get a notification, hey, there's a load of ready to be picked up. You want to do it or not, yeah, you know? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's a it's a pain point out, out on the rigs when you're looking for a driver and, you know, you may have a little small Rolodex of carriers that you've used or, you know, you use a big one like Acme or someone, but it's hard chasing down a driver. I mean, it takes hours most of the time to find someone, so. Didn't we didn't we have to transport our own downhole pump when we did our workover? I can't remember. We had to find the supplier first off, and then I think we, because we had that truck. Oh, yeah, man. Throw, we that, threw in the back. throw that bitch in the back of the pickup <laughs> and take it out there. <laughs> yeah, been, so, been there, done that. You just got you know? to get stuff done sometimes. Exactly. No. <laughs> but the platform itself, it, it's not just for companies to bid on it. You know, we, we already have two major drilling companies that they already working with preferred vendors they work with in the past four years, but they don't know where the trucks are. They don't know how to manage them. We'll mm -hmm. keep on calling them. So we design it in such a way that if, if you don't want to post the load to the load board for bidding, you can still use it to be able to track down the location of the drivers 24-7. You know, okay, so day. you can actually, you know, not only, it's not only just like a, a, a listing service where a driver can connect with someone that needs to transport a load, but there's actually tracking involved as well. Exactly. Um, no, okay. exactly. So uh, right now we are dealing with a company that they want to be able to use it. They have 50 trucks internally, you know, and they're, they're doing their own transportation, but they want to be able to track them down. So the way it works is they have a dispatcher and they have their driver set up as, as a, their own operator fleet, right? So once they have a load to be able to move, they're going to assign their own driver to the load besides moving to the load board but if they don't have any drivers available they can move the same load to the load board so they can be able to have outside carriers to be able to transport their load Interesting. so it's a win-win for for pretty much everybody how does how does tracking work is that is that self-reported by the driver is so it, it, it the whole platform 
it's being designed well a conglomerate of different applications. We're using over a thousand APIs to be able to have this platform working properly, right? Wow. So we're using Google and just to Google alone, Google Maps, we have 15 applications from Google that we have to pay for so we can be able to do the tracking, you know? Yeah. So a driver loads up on his app. We have three apps for iOS, three apps for Android, and we have web platforms for admin dispatcher and mm -hmm. operator dispatcher. So for the apps, for the phones, we have a driver app, we have a customer app, and we have an operator app. Because an operator, it's a company that has multiple vehicles and you don't want to have your driver that is just a driver, it's being paid by the mile, be able to bid on the loads, you have a dispatcher. And the dispatcher will be able to bid on the driver's behalf and to be able to assign a driver to a certain load, you know? So that way, you know, we pretty much cover everybody. In tracking, the driver has to load up on the app. And once they accept the load and once it's being assigned to a load, they have to slide once they arrive, once they start heading to the pickup. And once that's being done, the application is tracking down the location of the driver and everybody will get a notification, the shipper and the customer where it's being delivered, they get a notification to track down the, the driver location. That's so handy. It's good for the drivers too, because then you don't have someone like me calling you every hour like, hey, where the hell are you at? Exactly. Dude, those Acme drivers, they know me, man. So there's, <laughs> do you know the company you keep trucking? Have you ever heard of them? They're a huge startup out of Silicon Valley and they do the electronic driver's logs for yes. semi trucks. Yes, and the EM, EFM, yeah, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever they are. Anyways, they came down from Silicon Valley and they were making the rounds in Houston and they came across a guy and, and the keep trucking guy was like, yeah, I got to go talk to this guy, Colin McClellan. And the guy's like, what? He's like, I know Colin. He's like, I worked with him when I was at Acme. And I was like, yeah, I bet all those motherfuckers remember me because I was always calling them pissed off wondering where my load was. Well, so. we had drivers before where, you know, even, you know, you send a driver out to West Texas and he's taking a crazy ass drive towards Laredo. It's like, what are you doing there? You know, he's like, well, this is, this is this the road to uh, West Texas. No, it's not. And <laughs> You need to be on I-10 or exactly. I-20. <laughs> exactly. So, you know. So. For the development of the platform, how are you guys going about actually developing it? You know, or did you hire, did you build a team of developers to build that? Or are you outsourcing it? So we outsource it, mm -hmm. some of the stuff, and we tell them what we want. I learn a little bit about coding and just to get in trouble, not to be fooled. You know, mm -hmm. most of the time, you know, I, I feel like I'm being a, a woman going to an oil change. <laughs> and and in, in that matter, I, I want to educate myself not to be fooled and not to be like, no, it's going to be... $10,000 for just this plug-in. It's like, man, come on, it's not that much. It's, I yeah, know what exactly. it takes. Yeah. So, but we do outsource it. We tell them what we want and they put it, they're building it together for us Very how cool. we want it to. Is it, is it just you or do you have any partners? In so I do have two other partners that we work together, you know, okay. and one of them, it's a silent partner and they could make it here, but it's a big project yeah. and this is just the beginning, you know, yeah. back in the days, I wanted to be the dispatcher of the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm not just for service, for hot shots. And we're working on the next project that we want to do is we we, we going and try to right behind, be right behind Rig Up. You yeah. Know, going for the service side. Yeah. You know, we want to do build a home advisor for the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. So 
for you guys, you know, you got a couple partners. Did you go about taking outside funding for this? Did you guys no. put in your own money? You know, how, how are you guys planning on funding it and scaling it? So we didn't, we didn't, we didn't need any fundings, you know. Awesome. We put our own money into it, you know, we, uh, we built it ourselves. And at the moment, we're not looking for any funding until we want to show proof of concept and make sure this working. You know, we do want to grow up. We do look into get any investors in the long run. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, that's we the don't want to. We don't want to share. Uh, that's, a, that's the best <laughs> way to have investors call on you. The second you start saying we're not looking for investors, they get they get FOMO. They yeah. want in. <laughs> yeah. What are you working on? How much can I give you? <laughs> no, we we get emails all the time, and you know, and just a lot of people want to offer us loans, investing yeah. in it. It's just we're we're not ready. Yeah. And you know, we want to make sure that it, it's working a hundred percent. We only launched it about a month ago. Yeah. We were offered to be the whole dispatcher of the whole drilling company, a major drilling company in West Texas. We, we told them, no, I want to make sure that it's working 100%. This is what they're looking for. I don't want to go in and take out a big project and it's not working 100% and yeah. they're going to be kicking me out the door 100%. What, so. <laughs> what you just said is so important because I think a lot of founders would take that opportunity and just figure, oh, we'll, we'll break it and, and fix it along the way. But the problem is in oil and gas, you get a big contract like that, you get one shot. Exactly. And if, if it doesn't work properly, they kick you out and you never get back in. And then they tell everyone else that it's it all their buddies over so. beers. I, I always say that this is the biggest, smallest industry. Once you yeah. screw it up, everybody's going to hear about it. You know, <laughs> and uh, you know, my main philosophy is I really don't want my name or my company name being talked in the morning meetings, why we screwed <laughs> up and you know, yeah, over and over and over again. hundred percent. So, you know, with that, you know, what is y'all's strategy go to market? You launched it a month ago. Are you guys, are you looking to get, you know, a couple small pilots, you know, what, what's y'all's strategy for so, taking it to market? So right now we are already working with two, two major companies, you know, and we have a lot of drivers. They contact us. They want to drive for us. You know, we have over 300 drivers with their own trucks contact us. They want to be part of the platform so they can get on their own but we have to tone it down so in to be able to help out the customers we partner up with a major company that does all the due diligence to making sure that the carriers that we're working with they have all the licenses in place all mm-hmm. the insurance and everything else to be able to be covered and out of 300 you know believe it or not only 50 of those they had every paperwork in line to wow. be able to do transportation it's a pretty high percentage that didn't pass the due diligence test. It, it is. And I cannot stress enough, you know, for insurance. I, anytime somebody comes and do a job, even in my home, first thing I will ask, I need your insurance. And if mm-hmm. they hand me a piece of paper, that doesn't mean that they have it. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these guys, they sign up in the next week or two weeks, you know, they cancel, cancel it out. And yeah. Piece of paper, just a piece of paper, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Drilling so, companies, they don't do the due diligence. They don't call every week and making sure that their insurance is up to date, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's super important, especially when you're carrying something that's, you know, most likely going to be pretty valuable, right? Yeah. So are you guys taking the kind of like the early stage Facebook approach of launching like in a certain basin or a certain area and then expanding from there? Or are you guys launching that nationwide and, and, and rolling with it? Well, we, we're launching nationwide, but we are m- focusing on West Texas and South Texas yeah. and Oklahoma, where, you know, most busiest part of the oil and gas it is right now, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, if we have customers and if we have drivers within the area, we know we always can uh, find the drivers at any given time in no time to, to be able to help out the customers in different regions, Pennsylvania or 
North Dakota, you know. Yeah. What do you think some of the biggest barriers will be for you? Obviously, you're you're experienced entrepreneur, businessman. What do you see some of the biggest challenges being for you taking it to market? You know, is it adoption from educating the, the customer? Yeah, you know, that's the first key role that I've seen in any of the products, even in the previous businesses that I have. Educating the customers what the product does, including the services or anything, you have to help make them understand how he's going to be able to save money. You know, because at the end of the day, if the the customer does not save money, they don't want to do business with you, you know? Yeah. So I think educating it, you know, mm-hmm. but some of the customers, they still like that swing that hammer and, you know, still like that brake handle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're always, you're always going to have the people that resist yeah. Sometimes change, it's right? hard. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, you look at it like someone that's, they've worked a brake handle on a drilling rig for 30 fucking years and that's what they know. Really, I mean... That example, exactly. I, I can use, you know, first firsthand experience that I had guys, this is right when Payson kind of started coming out on the scene, you know, and, and you're having to put in your drilling activity exactly. and record your mud in a computer. Like some of these guys, they they died out of the workforce because they weren't willing to learn how to input information in that computer. I went out there, I was like, why the fuck is it so hard for you guys? This is just a touchscreen exactly. computer. Yeah. And guess what? shot up the ranks because of that while everyone else didn't want to learn how to use something new that's you know that's that's how technology kind of whenever we came up with the wireless sensors to monitor the health of the equipment uh, we came up with the temperature wireless sensors to monitor the uh, plug-in receptacle for the main traction motors on the drilling rig right so we came up with the hundred dollar wireless sensor to monitor if a plug-in receptacle gets loose the first indication is that you know it starts producing heat right? Mm. So if you produce heat, if it's getting a loose connection, that big current, it's going to create a big spark and it can blow plug-in receptacle mm-hmm. or it can go any further and blow out your inverter or your traction motor. So a minimum, minimum cost, just a plug-in receptacle, it would have been a $5,000 including parts and labor, right? Yeah. Not to mention the downtime, right? But yeah. the, time. the downtime from the rig and so everything. So with yeah. a $100 sensor and $30 a month service fee to monitor that, you know, uh, plug-in receptacle some of the customers like yeah i know i have a guy out there you know he has an infrared camera he can always go out there and just monitor but you know it only monitors a couple of seconds where the, the motorman goes out there and check it out with the infrared camera mm-hmm. a sensor like this is 24 7 sensors running 24 7 yeah <laughs> and as soon as it does creates that increase in temperature everybody around the world who's being set up to monitor the rig will get a notification a text message or email say hey this is hot and somebody needs to look at it yeah. You know, we saved a lot of money with, uh, with Trinidad rigs, you know. I mean, any type of preventative exactly. analytics or monitoring, I mean, to where you can save a catastrophic, you know, failure or downtime. Exactly. But you'll be surprised. You know, we had customers and we don't want to mention any names, but there's like, no, I have a whole crew. Don't want to, you know, why would I want to spend, you know, monthly service fee on this? <laughs> That's what they're being paid for. It's eliminating human errors, you know? Yeah, yeah. monthly crew to go out there and literally do preventative maintenance on one piece of gear, maybe once a month, once a quarter, maybe even once a year. Yeah. It's still not enough. Yeah. And you're still relying on the human error, you know, mm-hmm. on, on that guy to go out there and do that. And if it's, you know, it's going to screw up his yeah. job, you know. Yeah, yeah, human risk. I mean, some people just don't give a shit to be blunt. You know, they go out there, they collect their check and, you know, they don't do the job to the best of their abilities or even to... Mm 
no, I, I don't know. You can get me on a rant of how computers and sensors can do our jobs better than us, but so before we wrap <laughs> save up, that for, save, save that for another time. So before we wrap up, I think it was a cool opportunity because we get to see people in all different stages of their entrepreneurial journey, and it's cool to see somebody who you know has been successful and has had an exit, and then is we're seeing at the early stages of Upbit, and so it'll be really cool to get you back, you know, in the next six months to a year, yeah. and follow up and see where you guys are at. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I was successful before, but I also had many failures, you know, that I had to learn from it. So yeah. I think from everybody's uh, careers, you got to have failures to be able to learn how to be successful. Your successes come from the ashes of your failures. Exactly. Like, like a phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> so where can people find, where can they find more information about Upbid? Where can they find contact information for you if they're interested in so, using you guys? They can go to our website, up-bid.com, okay. you know, and we have all the information. They can sign up as a driver they can sign up as a carrier. You know, if they can, uh, if they're requesting a demo, we have uh, on, on our homepage, they can go ahead and book a, a demo with me and we'll set them up and show them exactly how it's going to be able to help them out and benefit from, from uh, using Outbit. Awesome. If you're a driver or a carrier, make sure you have all your certifications before you sign up for the platform. Oh, yeah. You don't want to be one of those 250 that didn't make the cut. So, <laughs> well, hey, man, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it for having us, man. All right, guys. Thanks again to Valentine for coming. If you enjoyed the show, usually I'd ask for a rating review, which that would be nice. But I have one ask. If you're listening to this, and apparently I think we have like 60,000 listeners now. We only have about 600 subscribers on YouTube. So big discrepancy between big discrepancy our podcast between and YouTube channel. We so, need some subs. If you guys don't know, every single one of these episodes is also recorded and thrown up on YouTube along with the vlogs. Colin and I have taken a little bit of a vacation. In video format. In video format and in audio. So you get to look at our ugly faces for 45 minutes. Facial expressions. <laughs> we are getting back into vlogging. We kind of took a little bit of a vacation for a few weeks just because I had to work. <laughs> yeah, a lot of don't realize that this is not our full-time job. That we actually have other businesses to run in. So we've just kind of been heads down. So if you could check out the YouTube, let us know what you think and we'll catch you guys on the next episode. Cool.